Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. Um, before we get started, remember that Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Pandora. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. I am also on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and I am on, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. So please go ahead and follow. So today is a great episode because today we're talking micro. I mean, we always talk micro, but we are actually having an interview a little bit later on. So it's always good to connect with other microbiologists. So let's do a quick recap of what happened on the last episode. So we started talking about tests and biochemicals that you can do for gram-negative cocci. I talked about oxidase. Of course, if you want to know more about oxidase, go ahead and tune in to episode 10 of the podcast. It's a good episode with good information about oxidase. So for gram-negative cocci, Neisseria and Moraxella, they are oxidase positive. I also touch more on, I touch more about um, a little bit of background on the gram-negative cocci. Like I talked about Neisseria gonorrhea, right? How it causes gonorrhea. So it's the leading cause of sexually transmitted diseases. You know, you can have like a, you can also have pharyngitis, cervicitis, and conjunctivitis. I also talked about Neisseria meningitis, which colonizes the oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal mucous membranes. Uh, I also talked about the NPN, which is the non-pathogenic Neisseria. So they're a group that they tend to be respiratory flora, but they do, you know, they can cause infections. And when they do, you know, they can be bacteremia, endocarditis, and meningitis. And I said non-pathogenic Neisseria. So when you hear the, the term NPN, it's referring to non-pathogenic Neisseria. I also went over another test that we go over in school, which is the acid detection uh, test, which involves the use of cysteine triptychase agar with 1% of a carbohydrate, such as glucose, maltose, lactose, and sucrose. And it has, it has phenol red as an indicator. And when acid is produced due to fermentation, the medium changes from red to yellow. And I went over the reactions. Since we have the interview today, I'm not going to go in detail with this. If you want a refresher, just go ahead and go back to the previous episode. And you can relearn them. But I did say that this test is not recommended by the CDC. Because you can have false uh, negative results. It doesn't work for oxidative Neisseria. So you can have some false negative results. So we have other tests. Uh, for example, we, the molecular side of it, it plays a big role. Like we can, we do PCR for like Neisseria gonorrhea, which they typically order in conjunction with chlamydia. And then for that, you can have like a cervical swab, genital swab, urine, 
And then you can also do PCR, like for Neisseria gonorrhea, Neisseria meningitis. As far as once they grow on the agar, we can also do, right, I talk about Vitek, Molotov, and then I went over two different medias that you can use for Neisseria gonorrhea and Neisseria meningitis. MTM, which is modified Thayer Martin, which is used for the isolation of Neisseria gonorrhea and Neisseria meningitis. And then you have Martin Lewis, which is for the isolation of Neisseria gonorrhea. And I went over the ingredients and the difference between Martin modified Thayer Martin versus Martin Lewis on the previous episode. So if you're still not quite clear, if you want a quick refresher, go ahead and refer to the previous episode. And that was about it regarding gram-negative coxine. So now we move on to the interview. So as part of our talking micro conversations, I, I have been trying to bring um, microbiologists that not only that do work outside of the clinical microbiology uh, field, something a little bit different. There's so many things we can do in this field. So as part of this today, we have a clinical laboratory scientist that she works in micro, but not exactly on the clinical hospital side of it. And as we go on, you'll find out more about what she does, but she does, um, she tests the, the organs that are going to go to donors just to make sure that there are no organisms. So she has agreed to come on board. Her name is Dania Casellas. So, and here she is. Hi, Dania. Hi, everyone. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thank you for agreeing to come into uh, Let's Talk Micro. Thanks for having me. So uh, just tell the audience a little bit about yourself as far as like your education and stuff like that. Sure. So I grew up um, in Tampa, Florida, and I went to school at the University of South Florida. I found out about, um, well, the degree was called medical technology over there. And I found out about it in high school, actually, through one of my like clubs I was a part of for like health, um, health careers and everything. So I was like, oh, this sounds pretty good. You know, I get to work in the background in the lab and you're still an important part of the medical team and everything. But I like the fact that we're kind of, you know, it's a good job for introverts, just kind of in the background, but still doing important things. Um, so I started my first job and actually in New York City and moved up there after I graduated um, from USF. So I worked up there in some pretty prestigious hospitals. It was a lot of fun. Got to see a lot of different microbes. And then I also went to a graduate school there at Hunter College. And I got my graduate degree in biomedical lab management. So um, that was a lot of fun, too. And then so I worked at a couple different labs in New York City. And then I moved back down here to Florida. And now I'm working more with um, tissue banking and organ donation, you know, making sure there's no pathogenic bacteria growing on on the tissues that are being transplanted, transplanted to recipients. Okay, so you mentioned New York, was it in the city or upstate? Yeah, it was in, it was in Manhattan. Yep, a couple different um, labs. In wow, the city. so that was an experience, like, like you had to like ride the subway and all that? Yeah, yes, I was living the city life. It was fun. It's way, way different from, you know, the lifestyle we have here in Florida. It's a little bit slower here. So when I went to New York, it's a little bit of a culture shock, but, you know, the energy is different, the vibes, but it was a lot of fun working wow. and living there. And New York is a, is a licensed state. So, yes, but correct. when, however you, so you went, when you went to school here in Florida, 
you took the ACP. And then mm -hmm. they took that in lieu of a, of a test. Yes, if I remember correctly, I so I got my, I did the ACP here. And then when I went to New York and to apply for their New York license, I just had to send my ACP scores. And I believe my transcripts from USF. And I, th I think that was it, because that was like back in 2011 now. <laughs> but I think that's what I had to do. So it was a pretty swift transition. Okay, right? and yeah, for the benefit of the listeners, and maybe those of you that do not work here in the States, so we go through a, a clinical laboratory sciences program, most typically two years. There's definitely diff different settings. Sometimes, you know, you do a bachelor's and then you do that program. Um, some universities, you do like a two and two, where you do two years of prereqs and then you finish the last two years, like the one in the University of Central Florida. And then you graduate with the bachelor's in clinical lab science. So upon finishing that program, in order to work in a lab, we need a certification. And there's various ones out there. The one that we were talking about is the ASCP, American Society for Clinical Pathology. So you take that test and basically with that, you are able to, in a way you can work in every, any state here. However, there are some states that we were talking about that they require a state license. Florida being one of them. And the process is like they do take your ASCP instead of you having to take an exam for that license. They take your ASCP, of course, your transcripts, you know, prove that you completed the program, and then they will issue the license. Um, here in Florida, you have to renew it every two years and everyone renews it at the same time. It's typically in August. Uh, with the pandemic on 2020, it got extended till November. But yeah, that's how it goes. Okay, so then you came to Florida. So tell us what you do right now. What's your, what's your daily responsibilities? What do you do in the lab? Yes. A day in the life of my microbiology job. So like I said, we do um, specialize, I guess, in tissue banking. So basically, um, for anyone out there who is an a organ donor, it's a little insight into what happens um, after you pass away. So basically, uh, someone passes away, they bring them to our facility. We actually have different facilities in different parts of the country, well, at least Georgia and Puerto Rico also. So when they send us a donor, they procure um, different bones and tissues, tendons and ligaments, and they bring them to our facilities. And basically, they swab each site, each tissue site, with a sterile swab, and they drop it into a, um, a thio, thioglycolate broth. And those broths, we incubate them for two weeks or maybe about 16 days because we don't work on the weekends here. We are very lucky. Um, so they'll incubate for two weeks. And what we do is check those broths every day, look for any signs of growth, which would be cloudiness, turbidity, you know, bubbles at the top forming. And if there's something growing, then we'll take it out from the incubator and we'll start processing it with a different, we have an SOP that we follow obviously. So if you want, I can go into like what we do after we pull it, but usually that's the main, the main thing we do to start the process. Okay, so translating that into the, into the clinical lab hospital setting. So like as I've as I talked about in other episodes, so we get our sample, right? Let it be whatever it could be, a, a swab, body fluid. We process it. Uh, right away, we do a gram stain, and then we put it on typically blood chocolate McConkie. 
we can add a PEA, depending on the source, we do anaerobic agar, and then we incubate it. So your first step when you get that sample is put it in a thiol. And then you said, of course, you know, you incubate it at least over four, over two weeks two to weeks. make sure. And those of you that already work in micro, you're already thinking, oh yeah, two weeks, right? Because we, we do get that, those requests about propionibacterium or what is called now cutibacterium that, that you get this. Um, yes. Typically from surgeons, they're like, okay, no, hold that sample for two weeks because I want to make sure you rule out cutibacterium. It is my experience that, you know, if, if it is there, you get it within five days, but you know, that's what the doctor orders. And of course, you know, we honor that request, but typically, and just my opinion, as you incubate it longer and longer, you might increase the chances of uh, contaminating it. You know, you open that thing, uh, try to make a gram thing, find that. So you might introduce something, but that's another subject. Okay. So you check for cloudiness. And then, so you don't do a gram stain from the beginning. You do it if you see cloudiness. Right. If something, if we see something going on, then we'll. Um, okay. Do yeah. A gram stain on it. So then let's say that you do see cloudiness. You do a gram stain. Then what's your next step? Okay. So we see cloudiness. We see, we do the gram stain. And usually like when I was working in the clinical lab, we go by what the site is to tell you which plates to sub it to. For us, we go by the gram stain. So we do our gram stain, depending which, uh, you know, morphology or gram negative rod, GPC, gram positive rods, depending what we see, we'll put it to certain plates. We are very limited to what plates we use. In a clinical lab, you have like, you know, your hectoid and stuff for stools and everything. And we are very straightforward in our lab. It's either, I'll do the list. If we see gram positive cocci or gram positive cocci pairs and chains, it's just a blood. If we see gram positive rods, we do blood auger and also uh, CDC. And then for anaerobic incubation. And then if we have gram negative rods, we will do McConkey, blood, and also a canamycin vancomycin plate. And I think that's it. So it's very straightforward, um, just depending on what we see on the gram stain. So I say, you don't do chocolate? No, we don't do any chocolate. There's no chocolate in our lab. Only when we have the cap deficiencies come in, we'll order some chocolate for that. But aside from that, we don't do any chocolate. Okay. Oh, that's, that's I guess, you know, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I know. It was weird when I first work, started working there. Yeah. I think because the, the, the way, what I'm thinking, especially for hemophilus, mm -hmm. And as I have worked in various facilities, I know like sometimes with the anaerobic auger, some facilities, they do put a chocolate anaerobically as well in case that there's a homophilus that you cannot see. Mm -hmm. But okay. So this is just, so you see your gram positive rods and then you do at the same time. So you incubate a blood aerobically and mm -hmm. a CDC anaerobically. anaerobically. Yep. Okay. And then with the gram negative rods, you do the same process. Mm -hmm. Okay. At this point in time, so you incubate your agar, and then what do you do as far as biochemicals and, and testing? Yeah, so for our biochemicals, um, so we don't have any kind of instrumentation in our lab. We know a lot of labs now have Maldi and Bitech. 
Cepheid and all the PCR, we don't have anything. So we're a little bit old school. So depending on what's growing on our plates the next day or for our anaerobes, we check them 48 hours later. Um, so for anaerobes, we usually do the rapid ana. So we have, we get a lot of, um, I still call it P acnes, but we get a lot of Pudibacterium um, in our samples for like the main organism that we see in our lab. So we use a rapid ana for that. So, you know, quick four hour test turnaround time. So that's great. Um, for gram positive cocci, we get a lot of coagulase negative staph. We don't go any further with identification, usually staph aureus. So we'll do our Bacti staph latex uh, for a quick result for that. And if it does come out to be staph aureus, we'll use our, um, oh my God, oxacillin plate to check for MRSA. And so we incubate that for 24 hours uh, with a fresh culture and check for growth. Um, what else do we do? Oh, for check for streptococci, we have alpha hemolytic um, colonies. We will do bioisculin salt. We do um, uh, the BHI brain heart infusion. It's like a, the little purple liquid in there. Mm. And also optic in disc, if it's alpha hemolytic, check for strep pneumo. Um, we do the same thing to check for group D enterococcus. Um, we check for the slants. The slant will turn black if it's group D, and we'll also look for the purple to yellow color change for the, the sodium broth and trying to keep everything straight. Um, and then what else do we do? For gram-negative rods, pretty straightforward. We use the API E, 20E. And then if it's oxidase positive, we'll use rapid NF for our non-fermenters, another four hour rapid turnaround time. And we have a couple other rapid tests that we use, but we don't use them too much because we usually see only a couple different organisms there. And honestly, that's the extent of the testing that we do. We don't really do anything crazy. Like I said, very old school, straightforward methods for identifications. Okay. So, so it's mostly between biochemicals and, and media and tests. Mm -hmm. Yep. So you don't get a lot like no Vitec and not, none of that. No, no Vitec. It wouldn't be like cost effective at all for us, you know, with the PMs and the reagents and everything. It just wouldn't be worth it whatsoever. Yes. And that's a good point that you're bringing up. And for your listeners out there, it all depends. Yeah, you, you definitely have to justify your volume so you can get more instruments and because they definitely do cost. And like, you know, like, like you were saying, mm -hmm. you have an instrument. So per your regulations in the lab, you need to do PM, which is preventive maintenance on it. Uh, depending on what it is, sometimes, you know, calibrations, you have to run controls, keep those policies up to date. So there's a lot of work behind the scenes than just running a sample. So if you cannot justify mm -hmm. the cost, so maybe some of you out there that work in huge labs, you might be thinking, well, this is like, you know, maybe somewhat simplistic, like you said, you know, old school, but it is something, right. if you're in a small facility or you don't get as much volume, that's what you're going to have. And it definitely works out because mm -hmm. if your volume is low, you might not see anything, like you say, you know, maybe some CNSs. Yeah. Yeah, that's the only thing I had to, it was definitely one of the sacrifices I felt I had to make coming to this lab. Like I said, we don't work weekends. That is a gem. You don't find that anywhere. Wow, yes. But at the same time, we have, we don't have that variety of bugs we used to see in New York City. When we get a, neg a gram negative rod here, we are ecstatic. We're like, oh my God, I have an E. coli. 
which in a clinical hospital, you say it every day, it's whatever. So it's, it's a lot of changes with this place, but I still like it. You know, the old school methods are still pretty fun to do though. Yeah, they definitely, they definitely help out. And, you know, like this is something that I do like to say over and over with, with automation, it comes like younger techs, you know, they're doing the test less and less. And mm -hmm. definitely by doing this old school, old school test, like we call them, um, you definitely let to learn to recognize your organisms. Mm -hmm. So you pretty much, and I like to say this, by the time that you put it on one of these tests, you should have a pretty good idea of what it is. Right. That way, if something goes wrong, you know where to turn. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the downsides of the Molotov. So you're like out of school, you're like, why do I need to do this all this test when something is going to give me the answer exactly. in 10 minutes? Will tell me. Yeah. But then, of course, you know, if you don't know what you're looking at or you scan your wrong place, someone else sets up the wrong organism, then you end up releasing that ID and then... It's more work because you put that patient in harm. You potentially get in trouble when all you had to do was do those biochemicals, rule some things in, rule some things out. And then that's it. I mean, this is all about the patient. So we definitely need to know what we're doing and what we're working with. And I think all this, all tests, you know, they definitely help out a lot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you say you get excited when you get an E. coli? Oh my God. Yeah. I know it's so basic. <laughs> For microbiologists, but for us, we're like, oh my God, the lactose fermentation. It's so pretty. But yeah, we just, we don't see it a lot here. And we do see some clostridiums though. I've uh, gotten some of those. Um, so something else I should mention, not every microbe that's growing on the tissue is considered dangerous. Um, kind of the same in the lab, you know, you have more than a more pathogenic. So for us, the big dogs are group A strep and clostridium. If we actually have those growing on the tissue, they won't use it at all to be transplanted because you know they produce toxins or whatever. So it's just more of a threat and a safety measure. So we don't use the tissue at all if those things are growing on there. There are some organisms that it can still be used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have different categories. So what they'll do if there's a category two, which is usually like the gram-negative rods and some other kinds, um, they'll do a special. They'll, just, they'll give like the, the tissue a special treatment with different antibiotics and stuff to make sure that all those bugs will be you know, eradicated from the tissue. Um, and they'll still be able to use it for certain processes or make certain products. But with some of the higher, the category three, which is like the bad guys, they won't use the tissue at all just for like safety purposes or whatever. Okay. So you were mentioning Clostridium. So which ones have you gotten? I've gotten Clostridium difficile every now and then. Um, what are the other ones that we get? Sometimes just call it species if we can't get like the, um, the whole name or whatever, the whole ID, but what were some of the, um, Sardelli? I actually want to Google a little bit because off the top, we don't get them too much, but sometimes you're like, oh my God, Clostridium. I will Google for some time for that. But, but yeah, when we get those, we're like, oh, this is bad. And then we have to, you know, do away with the tissue, but. And like the, the spready hemolytic ones are the ones where we're like, oh my God. Um, Perfringians, oh, that's yes. what I was trying to think of. <laughs> okay. So that one, yeah. For sure. Yes, definitely. And, and we do, of course, you know, as microbiologists that we do get excited when we see this stuff. And it's, of course, you know, we do this work for the patients. And when we find something that is pathogenic, 
like really bad for the patient. I mean, we have, we try to get it out there as soon as possible so the patient can get that treatment and we feel bad for them. But from the point of the science, you know, it's definitely exciting because you're like, oh my goodness, like you see something unusual because, you know, it makes us better at what we do. It's like we see unusual things and then we keep in our minds and we are able to recognize them better. So having said that, I do remember the one time that I had, one time that I had my first clostridium perfringens and it was so exciting. I'm like, I opened that plate. I see that double zone of beta hemolysis Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, wow. And then, you know, yeah, it was so exciting to produce that ID. And, and then of course, I, and the smell, the wonderful oh, smell. That yes. <laughs> well, you know, and then I look at the patient's, you know, history. And then it says, of course, that patient history of amputations and mm-hmm. which goes with, you know, it causes, you know, the gas gangrene. So it's very sad for the patient, but mm-hmm. it was so, so cool to see that the, what the textbooks are describing, you know, that double zone of, of beta hemolysis. So it's, it's definitely yeah, exciting, I yes. For sure. Okay. And then, so with your organisms, as far as, so you said that if you do have staph aureus, you rule out MRSA. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as any other susceptibilities, you don't do any? Yeah, not at all. Okay. Yeah. And then how does it work? Like, for example, like, so patient is on the list, let's say for a transplant, and then do they wait until you release that information to the transplant or sometimes there's? Yes, there's like a very long list of qualifications or eligibility criteria that tissue has to go through before it even goes into the OR to be, you know, transplanted into someone else. Um, But one of like, definitely we have to give out our report that everything is negative or, you know, we give it out to our manager and then she will give it out to, um, we have our director who looks at each uh, result before it goes out. But I actually didn't know when I first started working there, like for me, I was like, okay, cool. You know, tissue comes out of the, the person is transplanted within like a couple of days or weeks, but it's actually months. So the tissue it's frozen for a very long time at extremely low temperatures, you know, to keep it viable um, for a very long time before it's ever transplanted. So like I said, it's just like a long list of criteria has to pass through and then it's given to the new recipient or whatnot. So it takes a really long time from start to finish, you know, after getting through micro, even after it gets through us, there's still another list of things it has to go through before like the finished product. Makes sense. And you said you don't work weekends. So are you on sometimes on call? Um, we're not in the tissue bank. So they're actually tissues and uh, organs are two different sides. So for the organs, those have to be transplanted obviously much quicker than like tissues and bones can. So there's a whole um, immunology and serology team on the other side of the building and they're on call 24 hours, you know, seven days a week around the clock. So whenever, cause you don't know when organs are going to come in, right? Can't really plan that. So for those texting, testings, they're there all the time. So they have to, you know, like all the HIV, syphilis, everything that they have to test for. It's actually a whole different department for that. So just to summarize the, for the listeners out there. So you see the, the differences and the similarities. So whereas we start with, we get the sample, we go gram stain and media at the same time and then incubate. And then from there do the test. So it's like you play then gram stain, then media and then perform the ID. 
So, and then as far as what's the most unusual organism that you have seen? Ever? Or, uh, yeah. in my work? Well, I mean, uh, and in your work, yeah. And then, we'll, uh, and then we'll get to ever. Here, yeah. uh, we don't really care. <laughs> there is a Pseudomonas, oh my God, what was the species? Or, or is he, or is he habitant or something? Yeah, I got yeah, to see so, that one, which is weird. Habitants. I don't think I would see that in like the clinical lab, but somehow it was on a tissue. <laughs> we got to see it here. Um, I don't even know that one existed, honestly. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, but ever, ooh, I'd have to think about that one. Because I know sometimes we got to see, we had a parasitology lab in New York City. And sometimes they would get like some weird like worms and stuff or whatever. But, oh, I don't know. It's like the weirdest thing I've seen though. I saw so much in New York. It was, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> Okay, that's fine. So then, like I said, so there's not a lot of volume. So typically in a day, you're working with about how many um, samples we're talking on about average? Grand Saints on a busy day, it would probably have to be like 40 slides or so. That's on the busier side. I'm making about 40 gram things, which is honestly not that much <laughs> compared to a clinical lab. But for us, since it's only one person uh, working on all the gram stains in one day, that's that can... Um, kind of be a locks. We also, like I said, we're a little archaic in our lab. So we don't have like barcodes that like, you know, label barcodes that go on the plates or everything. We have to handwrite stuff. So <laughs> instead of working, I don't know if you guys use Cerner, like your LIS on the computer, we don't work electronically. We literally have, we, it's like little index cards of paper and we write all the like information for that sample, well, we type it out and then print it. And then, but when we're actually doing our workup, we write everything down like, oh, blood auger, coagulase negative, non-hemolytic, it's all written out. So you would think, okay, well, 40 slides isn't that much, but when you're like writing out your cards and like doing all these multiple test things, it can be a little bit more laborious than what, you know, in the lab where we just type everything out, draw on the machine kind of thing. So it's a little different, but yeah, I would say like about 40 slides every day or thiotubes that we're pulling from the incubator on average in a day, depending. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, like you mentioned, definitely um, those of you out there that if you work in a large facility, you might think, oh, 40 gram stains. I mean, I do that in a right. shift and, and that's it. I mean, but yes, as you're in a smaller facility and there's less personnel, so then you definitely have to do all that stuff so 40 40 stains in a smaller facility it's a lot especially like mm -hmm. you described if you're writing us, stuff so. <laughs> uh, typically yes typically in a, even in a, like in a clinical lab a smaller section the one that's reading plates sometimes you know has to get up and do mm -hmm. rapid testing do it's covid fast, testing yeah. so it's not the same as a large facility well all you're doing is oh i'm gonna mm -hmm. gram stain all day so i can get 40 50 slides no problem. So it's, mm -hmm. it can be challenging. I definitely see that. I mean, I have worked in both small and large right. facilities and I, I see the contrast. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely, like I said, it's definitely very important work because of course, with so many patients in our country that need transplants, mm -hmm. um, we definitely have to make sure that these, you know, this organ, this organs, they are free of organisms and yeah. they're not going to cause harm to the patient. 
So it's a very important work. Um, so as far as working in that field, as far as education, it's just as a clinical lab scientist, you can work in that field. Doesn't need any any more education than that, or did, that, uh, no, did the masters help you? Or? I didn't even know this like tissue banking world existed until I was moving back from New York City and like um, someone had called me about it, about the job, but I didn't need anything extra to work, you know, specifically with tissue banking or anything. I just, same thing, I had to be licensed um, as a clinical lab scientist and that's about it. I mean, my master's is more geared towards like, you know, management. So I wouldn't say like it helped me get into this realm specifically. So yeah, which was great. <laughs> I was like, what? No weekends, let's go. No, what's up? So <laughs> it, it was good. Okay. And so you definitely, you, know, you like micro, do you see yourself doing this or the, the, do you have any plans to maybe be like be grow up in management or do another I don't know, it's hard. side you know, of micro? Like, you know, when I got my master's, I was like, yeah, I can move up in the ranks and go for a supervisor or manager. But, you know, that comes with different responsibilities. And, you know, you have to look at it to, you know, obviously, yes, there's more money and everyone likes that, but are you leaving the bench work, you know, which is why I fell up with micro in the first place to be working on the bench with the microbes. And sometimes when you get into, you know, like higher positions, it's more paperwork and managing people and scheduling, which is fine, but you're leaving behind like, you know, the guts of like why you started working in micro. So I've gone back and forth, like, I've honestly, I've never applied for a higher position. So I just felt like I really like working the bench. So, you know, just kind of have to think about, you know, where your priorities are at, what's more important for you, what's more fun, what's going to make you happy, honestly. So, but yeah, just, I really love working the bench. So I think about it sometimes, but I love the bench. I mean, I, I agree. Definitely. If, uh, if you're trying to keep that, like that work life balance, I mean, working on the bench, yeah, you just do your work, do your organisms, you're definitely involved in it. And as someone that I have done both, um, definitely when on the management side, like the work doesn't right. stop when you leave. I mean, you still get, so you are in the middle of dinner and then next thing you know, you have mm -hmm. a text message, hey, I'm not coming to work. Um, so then you have to start seeing, okay, right. am I short? Am I doing... Who do I get to come in? So you're texting everyone. Um, so it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't end. So it's just, if that's some, you know, something like right, you exactly. want, you yeah. have to be prepared. Like you're going to mm -hmm. be working yeah, outside. Just go home and the on your bench, like go do whatever you want. Yeah. But when you're up your position, it's like, mm, yeah. End. Yeah. So as a bench, like, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, the only maybe that I will think about it, if I was at home, it was just, did I put this plate in the incubator? Or... <laughs> yeah, that... yeah, yes, I know exactly. That's, that's a bad feeling. Like, you're like, did I leave my tray out or did I come back to work in like, the morning and uh, nothing has grown? Or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was my that was the, my worst worry. I mean, when I was on the bench, but yeah, on the management, it's, it's more challenging. So, I mean, as you have seen, there's definitely a lot of demand in our profession. Um, I don't think there's a huge unawareness about what we do. Um, typically, people find out, you know, they're going to graduate or they're already graduated in something else. And then it turns out that a friend of a friend did the program. And then you look into it or by accident, you're looking at something and it's like, oh, look at this. What do you think we can do 
um, to promote more awareness of our field? Um, my first thing is always social media. I love Instagram. <laughs> I know you love, you're on there too, but so I love your page because you advocate so hard for microbiology and you give out some great quality information. And for me, like I love sharing what I do in my stories. I think sometimes we think like, well, who wants to see stuff about microbiology? You know, no one cares about the lab, but you don't know that. And just sharing your passion about what we do, it's kind of like, you know, obviously you can entertain other people and your stuff and obviously it's the knowledge and information you're giving them. A lot of people don't know we exist. You know, that's part of why we're shorts. So shorts that all the time, but use your social media, you know, don't be embarrassed about what you do. We do awesome work, you know, talk about it in your posts or whatever. And I think, um, I, th I feel like we used to do this in my lab in the lab I'm in now. I'm sure if the pandemic's not going on, but sometimes they would send out people into the schools and like middle schools or whatever to talk about what we do or tissue banking so if your lab is ever looking for someone or maybe you can bring it up to your manager or upper management and be like hey like how cool would it be to go out to the schools to talk about talk to the kids but what we do as scientists because you know when kids are thinking about you know when they're growing up they're not going to be like I want to be a microbiologist like they want to be doctors <laughs> you know the people who they see on the forefront so yeah, just to get like our career out there, you never know, we can do presentations when stuff comes back to normal or whatnot. But yeah, I think social media in general is such a powerful tool. It's such an easy and free way to get knowledge out about what we do. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, nowadays with everyone being on, on, you know, on social media all the time, um, I'm kind of happy in a way that when I was going through school, um, there wasn't that big social media because it would have mm -hmm. been such a huge distraction. I think by the time I finished my bachelor's and everything, um, you know, like maybe like the iPhones and stuff that were making their mm -hmm. their way yeah, in. Coming up, yeah. But now it's like, yeah, it's definitely, but it, it is a great tool. And as I've been doing this page, I definitely seen like some of the medical lab sciences programs, they are creating Instagram pages. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, I'm trying to see if I see them, I reach out with my podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, bring more awareness, try to share their content as well. Because yeah, it's definitely a good tool. And like you said about the schools, that will definitely be something because yeah, I, me growing up, I never said I'm going to be a medical <laughs> yeah. lab scientist. No one says that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no one. It's always, like I said, you know, it's doctor, lawyer, maybe teacher. Yeah. Um, and it's just like in my case, yeah, it was the at the end of my first contract in the Navy. And then I was trying to find something to do that if I got out, I could do it on the outside. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found out. Yeah. So I think if someone, especially once we get a, a better handle on COVID and that sending maybe some reps and, you know, go talk to the school, some techs or some managers and describe mm -hmm. what we do, you know, talk to seniors yeah. in high school to see, you know, this is what you can do, the steps. So it will be very helpful. Yeah. And definitely, yes, I, like I said, I do like your page as well. And you definitely put, you know, I love the pictures of the houses and. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I have a problem with looking at houses. <laughs> yeah. Well, very beautiful. And then definitely you're, you know, into fitness and your workout. So yeah, definitely. You have some really good content out there. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know. Yeah. For, for me, it's been really hard. Oh, uh, and we talked about this before you and I, but yeah, like uh, getting more followers. And even though it seems like I'm on a good pace, 
but it's definitely yeah it's it's hard you have to put some time in yeah. and oh yeah it takes work for sure yeah. yeah especially that and i'm on twitter as well and so yeah you have to put some time mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't right. happen overnight or anything so just no is there anything else that you would like to tell the audience um no i think that was it oh well i always encourage everyone to be an organ donor that's something that you know you're comfortable with and helping saving lives and enhancing lives. So um, yeah, that's something you want to do. Save some lives. <laughs> awesome. So there you have it, uh, listeners. We have a medical lab scientist that works with uh, donor testing. So something very interesting in our field, something different from the day-to-day play reading. But at the same time, the contribution is very important because everything in this field is about you know, what we do, especially about the people, getting a better understanding of the organisms, whether you're doing it in research or in the clinical side. So this type of work is definitely very important. Okay, so um, Dania, well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Take care, bye. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy listening to Dania Casellas because I certainly did enjoy it too. Um, we see the differences, how varied the microbiology field is, what contributions you can make, right? With the interview with Carla Zamora, you saw that she works in environmental microbiology, making sure that the companies and their products, they don't have organisms that can be harmful to us. And then Dania works with something very important with organs. So many patients that for many reasons need transplants. You have, we want to make sure that those organs don't have pathogens that can cause the patient harm. So it's great work. So definitely, I hope you enjoyed it. Continue staying motivated, staying safe. Bring that passion to work. That's so important. It's such a good work, such a great job that we do and so important. So continue bringing that motivation. And of course, have a great week and continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.